This lecture will explore the ways in which political economy, that is the, an understanding of the social and political relations and organization among groups and societies, have come to create unevenness and subscribe the environment as a space of accumulation, appropriation, degradation, carbon emissions, overutilization, and dispossession. In political economy, in particular economics, since the early 20th century, the environment is often perceived and understood as a commodity external to the economy and where relationships between resource extraction and human livelihood are disconnected. In this lecture, I will provide a definition of commodities and then will show the relationship between colonialism and the environment present a typology of colonialism and show the relationship between the plantation economy and historical and contemporary environmental events. Environmental commodities thus become a source for entrepreneurs and corporations within economics to capitalize upon and transform those commodities into manufactured products for consumption and for economic growth. In European thought, the environment is subordinate to human wants and needs and thus must serve humanity through its commodification. Much of this positivist science by which e economics takes its influence suggests, quote, man has dominion over or command over nature. George Beckford, who is a Caribbean scholar, refers to this scientific phenomenon as metropolitan man, who has provided us certain rationalities and logics about why the climate problem exists after, in many instances, in part by denying that the corporations act and activities of metropolitan states have created the political, social, and economic apparatus that underpin climate breakdown. 1492, Colonialism and the Environment. It is important to note that the concerns over the environment of recent age regarding climate change and the imminence of climate and ecological breakdown, the causes of which date back to five centuries. Industrialization, overaccumulation, and maldistribution of resources that went increasingly towards global economic centers in Europe and later the United States, in those largest economies have brought us to the current stage of climate breakdown. The, these historical acts that have contributed to prosperity in some regions and the ability to withstand or isolate clima climatological and environmental shocks have also bred despair, misery, and environmental marginalization in large parts of the global south. In her essay, 1492, A New View of the Americas, Sylvia Winter asserts that the terms of exchange under Euro-American Euro expansion during colonialism formed the basis of seeds of change that drove us to dispossession and marginalization, especially among descendants of one of the parties of the exchange, in particular the Global South. In this winter shows 
that European American colonialism is responsible for ecocide and genocide of the indigenous peoples, as well as the subjugation of black peoples across the Atlantic. Citing Susan Harho from 1492, the so-called start of the European European American voyage or expansion to new lands and regions for conquest, extraction, and settlement, Winter highlights that this was the pre prelude to genocide and ecocide of indigenous peoples. These expansionary adventures also led to the under-evaluation of environmental practices that revived the land and nature, and as well to the chasm between human and natural worlds, as supposedly quasi-independent entities. This formulation circumscribed Black and colonized people's relationship to land and ecologies. Now I want to look at the typology of colonialism, considering in particular that formulation put forward by Lloyd Best. An important way to consider colonialism as distinct patterns of change is through Lloyd Best's typology. Colonies of conquest, colonies of exploitation, and colonies of settlement that contribute to our understanding of its imminent effects. Regions that underwent conquest were about the way in which people were organized to facilitate redistribution and transfer of wealth from one region to the next. The resource flows within colonies of conquest went into infrastructures that enabled this transfer, that harnessed native labor to produce communal goods, consumption supplies, and precious metals. The indigenous system of organization was compromised by a redefinition of resources and by the use of superior techniques of coercion that accrued rent to European officials who are resident in the colony. It was also a, a mechanism by which land rights and property rights and venture profits were appropriated to Europeans. Second, colonies of settlements were organized under mercantilism by direct organization of production and detailed regulations regarding trade and production. Within colonies of settlement, Surplus is earned through export of staples and sales to other settler colonies, protection of stolen land through large arms and arsenal, and which are then, this surplus is then reinvested for consumption and st to stimulate domestic demand. Colonies of exploitation, on the other hand, are arranged to produce for export. Colonies of exploitation, which comprise the majority of the Caribbean region, parts of Asia, North, uh, North Brazil, for instance. These were uh, infrastructure, military and administrative infrastructure, were provided within these spaces alongside economic enterprise, organization, and initial capital. 
in these colonies, African and indentured labor comprised the majority of the labor force. We must not think of this particular typology as a strict as strict delineations in time, nor deterministic in the mapping of specific causal histories of present-day environmental change, but as a way to understand how extractive formations and accumulation took place and how these can be considered within the context of the present. Now I want to look at the plantation economy, its histories and impacts. It is the latter formation, which is colonies of exploitation or extraction, which I want to focus on for this as we characterize the Caribbean region in particular. This particular formation was based on a framework of racialized labor that aimed to modernize and transform these spaces and geographies into plantation economies. And as George Beckford has pointed out, open up these regions, underdeveloped regions, to extraction and new environmental systems that serve to promote capitalist growth in the colonial uh, empires in Europe and the metropolitan centers, especially in, in, in Europe. These colonial demarcations help us to better appreciate how personhood how the personhood of black, indigenous, and other marginalized collectivities are deprived of humanity in the face of current environmental calamities, such as hydrological and climatological formations, such as droughts, type, tropical typhoons and hurricanes, ocean acidification, coastal erosion, and through deliberate exportation of plastics, electronic and other material wastes, which have comprised to a large extent, uh, have been exported to a large extent to the global south from global north countries. Colonial environmental practices have thus evolved alongside practices of industrial agriculture through the plantation in the Americas and the Caribbean in particular. How these histories matter are through a, a few mechanisms we can think about today. First, the economic structure of these island territories compared to the past where the majority of islands constituted sites of agriculture for which African and indentured Asian labor would traffic to produce sugar, cocoa, coffee, cotton, and other cash crops, what have you. These islands are now a mixture of resort islands dependent on tourism, extraction zones reliant on resource, resources like bauxite, oil and gas, and gold, and now open financial centers. They are all, in one way or another, susceptible to extreme weather patterns attributable to climate change and other geologic formations, as they constitute a significant as these sectors of the economy constitute a significant contribution of, to the economy and they, they keep the domestic economy going through employment, through uh, social mobility and so on. When major disasters environment of, or environmental catastrophes 
erupt as we, we have seen with the recent volcanic eruptions in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, or Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas in 2019, or annual droughts or environmental shocks in Haiti, or flooding in Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago, the entire economy is affected and no sector, no community is isolated from the economic and environmental shock in most instances. For instance, two major hurricanes in 2020, Hurricane Idai and Eton, caused over 400 deaths in one year that witnessed during the Atlantic hurricane season over 30 tropical cyclones. When these events occur, they envelop the entire society because these societies, which have been nurtured through colonialism, are considered open zones, susceptible to environmental shocks that are entangled with the economy. Second, because of the resources are extracted on a yearly basis and continually through and repatriated through profits from transnational tourist, petroleum, mining, and financial corporations, insufficient resources are available for yearly relief, recovery, and rebuilding activities after major environmental events. Their institutions were deliberately created not to address these problems of today, such as climate change, but to produce for export and not to sell, solve the problems related or borne by external forces or shocks. It is why the Caribbean, Caribbean countries from the year 2000 to 2019 constitute the top 9 out of 10 countries globally in terms of the economic impacts from extreme weather events, according to the according to the United Nations Human Costs of Disaster Report. It is notable that this region, if we consider the English-speaking region and Haiti and Suriname, only make up about 14 million people. But, and also, this region is responsible for less than 0.17% of global carbon emissions. Contrast this with the the European Union 27 countries that are responsible for 22% of global carbon emissions historically and the United States which is responsible for 25% of global carbon emissions. Where do elites and domestic power structures fit into this scenario? As we consider the political economy and the environment and the impacts of various forces, external and internal, it is important to consider how the domestic structures were reconstituted in the early independence period, moving from a colonial society into a so-called independent society meant that domestic powers, domestic power structures, domestic uh, social groups such as labor were attempted to alter the course of the colonial economy and transform the colonial economy to what to benefit locals and the domestic communities. These efforts 
were aimed, as my colleague Zofia Edwards points out, in the case of Trinidad and Tobago, were aimed at changing how local resources, especially proceeds from petroleum and natural gas, were invested for the benefit of the local population. These struggles that ensued between labor, the state, and domestic elites took shape and were most active in various forms led by working class groups and organizations and labor institutions in Grenada, Jamaica, and Trinidad and Tobago, as well as to a lesser extent, Guyana. State policy during the 1970s and early 1980s was geared towards continuing some of these economic activities of extraction, of exporting agricultural products in, to a large extent, and turning later on these societies into tourist zones and to uh, financial centers. In some cases, new activities were developed in order to help fairly redistribute resources. However, these were often undermined by domestic, the continuing power of transnational corporations, as well as former colonizers that undermined the, the changes in political institutions as well as economic institutions. While colonial offices were officially closed and local politicians and business elites took charge of certain sectors, the economies remained extractive and were marginalized in the global economy, moving often in cadence with the ebbs and flows of global economic events. I would now like to take a look at contemporary extraction activities. Since the 1980s, the resurgence of international finance, led by the international institutions of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, in support of private capital, ensured that gains made in the early, early post-independence period were virtually reversed. The distribution of income and wealth in favor of tourism capital, as well as resource extractive capital, undermined interest in environmental concerns, as Caribbean countries increasingly lost trade and agricultural concessions in Europe that were set up to support former colonized countries. Extraction continued unabated with few concessions to labor and working people and communities, while the economic structures of these Caribbean societies slightly changed. In 2010, Norman Govan presciently, before his untimely passing, called the accumulation of events of environmental, economic, and political of a political nature existential threats, highlighting how these forces and events were contributing to both environmental marginalization and economic dislocation in the Caribbean. The fact is here that natural disasters were increasing in frequency alongside a number of economic, social, and political shocks that threatened the viability of these societies themselves. Their effects accumulated or accumulate because of the nature of the political, economic, and social 
social organization of Caribbean societies. While popular and media representations seek to depict climate change as a threat to all human beings everywhere, we know that there are varying levels of exposure to this threat due to pre-existing factors, as I've talked about regarding social difference in the societies along race, gender, and class formations. Climate change renders the Caribbean both hyper-visible and invisibilized because of the normality of extreme weather occurrences in recent years. While international institutions like the World Bank and International Monetary Fund highlight in their in various reports about the Caribbean, the former will, in the case of the World Bank, has indicated that the Caribbean, in the case of hurricanes alone, amount to 835 US million dollars in annual losses, which seem very catastrophic. However, the valuation and the practice of valuation of these kinds of costs also create divisibilities about human existence. It tells us what can be sacrificed and what can be counted and what is not valued in terms of community life. For instance, we know that the Caribbean region forms part of the top 10 countries with, with respect to major economic losses. But in recent climate reporting and climate summits, do we even hear about this region mentioned at all? What this has meant is that the plight of Caribbean societies are largely marginalized in political discussions. It has also resulted in these communities being burdened in large respect with considerable public debt made possible through international financial agencies like the IMF. The Bahamas, for example, have added over $500 million in public debt since Hurricane Dorian in 2019. The little island, the Commonwealth of Dominica, has, as a result of Hurricane Maria in 2017, its domestic pub, its public debt as a percentage of GDP is now stands at 83%. Or it stood at 83% at the end of 2017. Other islands have suffered increasing debt servicing costs after major environmental events. In addition, risks to the risk to disasters and new forms of commodification, including through capitalization of oceans and nature, have translated into ways in, into ways in which investors, especially global investors, can accumulate returns through new financial assets associated with risk pooling, citizenship by investment schemes, and blue and green bonds. These new financial products often promoted by regional institutions like the Caribbean Development Bank through the Caribbean Catastrophe Risk Insurance Facility have extended the plantation economy to both increase rent and account for risk to investors who have made these financial 
uh, investments to improve resilience. As the plantation economy's accumulative capacity reaches, reaches its limits, the Caribbean is becoming a new source of financial assets for global investors as the risk of investing and the cost of capital increases due to the existential menace of climate change, climate devastation, and debt logics. Finally, I want to examine a few contemporary issues in political economy and the environment. I want to briefly pay attention to two problems of contemporary political economy. First, the notion that a global hegemonic project known as the Global Green New Deal that starts in the United States and Europe and shoots off across the global south can deliver justice or can deliver a green transition for countries in the global south and in particular the Caribbean. The Green New Deal, which is a, a project that has been initiated uh, by both the United Nations uh, Conference on Trade and Development, as well as officials and politicians and even certain environmental movements in Europe, in, in the United Kingdom, as well as the United States, often has this idea that green transitions can happen, that is, the change of an energy systems towards greener, lower carbon alternatives like uh, solar energy, as well as wind and so on, can happen without considering the history and specter of imperialism. It is important for us to understand that imperialism has not left us. And it is at the center of global development schemes since the post-independence period. In the Green New Deal idea, according to the UNCTAD 2019 report financing a Green New Deal, some external body, in particular the IMF, will ensure that countries in the global south keep track of green targets through some sort of tutelage program as the IMF and other international financial bodies provide financial resources for these countries to meet their green transition targets. It is also hoped by the Green New Deal uh, proponents that these countries, most of which are in the Global South, will stop extracting their oil uh, oil deposits, their mineral resources, and so on, which in many instances make up at least 60% of their economic output and their exports. In this way, the Green New Deal proposes that green technologies can stand in as a form of so-called reparations, according to the words of John MacDonald, former Shadow Chancellor in the United Kingdom, to these former, formerly colonized societies. These societies will essentially have to buy in to the idea of a Green New Deal and their societies already acting, lacking, sorry, in terms of political influence globally 
would essentially diminish further democratic accountability to their populations. Second, I want to deal with the idea of degrowth. According to this perspective, all societies, given the planetary overreach and increased levels of carbon emissions caused through industrialization and perpetrated by many countries, especially in Europe and the United States, that have caused us to reach a point of climate breakdown, countries must degrow and countries in order for them to move towards a sustainable and ecologically sustainable path, certain emerging economies or certain countries in the global south should not aspire to the same level of high-intensive carbon uh, society like in Europe. This degrowth perspective is quilted and adorned in certain generalizations about the economy and society. It relies heavily on lessons about growth in so-called advanced economies, and so the policy implications that arise from the degrowth perspective have, to a certain degree, little relevance to Global South countries. It is because this perspective and its proponents misrecognize growth as largely a singular process and not one that is driven by different sorts of empirical realities across societies. It performs and perpetuates the same kind of European-American rationalism and historical universalism about the problem of climate breakdown that we face as societies, but often these impacts and effects are quite distinct across space, time, and stages of capitalist development. The Green New Deal idea lacks an appropriate historical analysis and legitimacy and foists a global idea both in the global north on everyone else in the global south. It perpetuates various forms of dependency, including in governance, technology, and finance, as the Green New Deal, through various climate policies in the United States, for instance, suggests that countries in the global south will serve as spaces for capitalist expansion, through the export of green technologies from the United States. The Green New Deal idea is also dependent on a state apparatus that is largely diminished in the Global South for these countries to implement many of these particular proposals. Many of, of Much of this institutional apparatus in these countries have been diminished, fragmented, and completely eviscerated due to structural, adjust, structural adjustment from the 1980s and 90s, as well as broken social contracts with their populations. It also relies on the strengthening of the state in the global north. A militarized state that may act as a global climate police, while rhetorically the United States disregards its central role as the major contributor historically to climate breakdown in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. 
these particular perspectives we need to think about as contradicting the idea of reparations, but also contradicting what climate justice should mean for the global south. They start from an inaccurate historical perspective that suggests that contemporary emerging economies or so-called emerging capitalist countries while largely taking the spotlight off of the industrialized, industrialized capitalist center. All the while, it centers Europe and global north and pays little if no attention to the historical responsibility and patterns of climate devastation born by black enslavement, native genocide, deliberate underdevelopment, and resource extraction and exploitation. The growth in particular appears to present universalist principles about how to address the climate and ecological breakdown, and by implication contributes to an epistemic violence and erasure of the global south epistemologies and historical experiences. Supposedly, because Europe and the global north have created the problem and the sins of overconsumption and capitalist growth are largely theirs, it is up to Europeans and the global north to engage in what Sylvia Winter refers to as certain kind of rational redemption or righteous correction whereby the global go- whereby the goal of economic growth is eliminated and from policy and economic lexicon it wholly ignores the reparative demands f- for climate justice in the global south but it completely almost ignores the historical legacies of colonialism of global economic extraction and the like neither of these per- perspectives are in a, in a, adequate to consider the deep and and complex historical processes that underpin climate breakdown. It is why we must start by centering our analysis of the problem of climate change and the environment on the liberation from the legacies of colonialism. In conclusion, these policy perspectives and the theories that underpin them have fundamental problems that are, that are rooted in Euro-American universalism. That I hope that I've shown in this lecture was antithetical to, the, to Caribbean political economy and understanding the roots of climate problem today. Caribbean scholars, including George Beckford, Norman Govan, Lloyd Best, as well as Carrie Levitt of the plantation economy tradition, have aptly addressed the first problem with respect to the economic structure and the institutional and political organization of societies as being important for understanding these kinds of environmental and economic shocks. Norman Govan in particular, who has long advocated for true independence, along with his part, along with his his comrades in the New World Group, make independence and genuine independence an important end goal of breaking the colonial linkages 
from European metropolitan societies. These linkages continue to oppress these societies through financial, technological, and transnational dependencies. The bas basis of the plantation economy school was to reassert the agency and ideas of the people, communities, and workers of the Caribbean so that they could meet the basic needs of their societies. It was never about reproducing growth in the region to the extent of capitalist development in the global north, in particular Europe and the United States. But rather, it was about creating an indigenous analysis of the region's problems in order to excavate solutions that are, that are driven by regional and local circumstances. They never interpreted the need for development into, in the image and likeness of European capitalism in order to meet the challenges of the post-dependence period that brought about the levels of racial and ethnic marginalization as well as economic dependence. If anything, persistent connections through various forms of colonialism and neocolonialism pose significant challenges to meeting the climate problem today. The dominance of knowledge in the region by institutions like the Inter-American Development Bank through institutional support of governments and the business sector continues to suppress this, this possibility. I would suggest that the ethos of the plantation economy tradition offers continued prospect for devising relevant solutions that meet the basic needs and reorganize societies in the face of climate breakdown. I also suggest that a community approach to governance, which is one that we need to explore, and in terms of pooling resources that offer one of the best chances of addressing the problems of climate breakdown. But that's for another session. I hope that I've shown how we might think about the political economy by centering the experiences and understanding of colonial legacies or continuing legacies of colonialism and form of extraction through particular hegemonic development projects like the Green New Deal, financial instruments and institutions that organize these societies and their relationships to the environment and, envir and, and environmental breakdown today. The social, political and economic structures exacerbate enduring asymmetrical relations and unjust systems of extraction, perpetuate certain configurations between us as human beings and the global and the natural world, and create differential exposures to environmental catastrophes.